Welcome to Cerebrana. I'm Yvette. And I'm Cynthia. And this is episode 19. We're two Latinas from working class immigrant families navigating law school and bringing y'all raw, critical analysis of the law, current events, and personal politics. Why? Because we want to break down barriers set up by elite institutions and democratize knowledge. For our Deep Thought segment, we'll be talking about Patricio Guzman's documentary, The Pinochet Case, where he documents the process of extradition for Pinochet, the dictator of Chile for many years who oversaw a coup and torture of hundreds of thousands of Chileans in the 1970s. For our current event, we'll discuss Pope Francis's recent meeting with Chilean survivors of child sexual abuse at the hands of Catholic priests. And for our case, we'll discuss the case of Garcio, Garcia Lucero and others versus Chile, in which the Inter-American Court of Human Rights found Pinochet and the state of Chile, Chile guilty for not properly compensating vic- the victims and survivors of torture under the Pinochet regime. Do we want to do a, f- a check-in before we dive in? Yeah, we can do a quick check-in. How are you, Cynthia? I'm good. I'm finishing up um, this quarter and trying to get ready to uh, go to, out into New Orleans for mm-hmm. w- where I'll be for my summer internship. And things are going well with that. Yeah, things feel good right now. They feel good. What about you? I mean, you're the one that's getting ready to graduate, just going to have a couple exams left and then bar. Yeah, just one exam. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, and then the bar. Um, we've been good. I've been studying for the bar. I started studying for property like two days ago, and it's so boring. Especially, it's like it's so much to learn. Also, if you yourself have never owned property, or if no one in your family has ever owned property in the American legal system, it, I think it's doesn't feel familiar at all. In the no, way yeah, it's like all these terms that are totally foreign to me. But it'll be okay. <laughs> yeah, it will. It will. And you I mean you made it through these three years? That's... Yes. Yes. Okay, should we move on and talk about the documentary? Yeah, let's do it. It's such a good documentary, so I'm excited to talk about it. Okay, so I think we can give uh, a little background to the documentary first before we start. Um, It was directed by Patricio Guzman, and he has actually made two other documentaries Mm -hmm. about Chile and the dictatorship. And he also focuses on land in really interesting ways, and I think that like watching the three documentaries is worth it and he made this in the early 2000s um it was kind of one of his earlier documentaries and then another thing to note for background is that you can classify this documentary in the category of third cinema which was a film movement in latin america that wanted to reject hollywood standards and hollywood aesthetics and the idea that film is meant to make money and it's basically it's like a group of leftists who wanted to use film as part of social movements oh wow um that's really cool i i I like that i appreciate that and now and that makes sense for the documentary a lot of it also did you want to give do we want to give some background on chile and like what the just i mean i imagine you know everybody knows the name binochet yeah but i don't think I, I had as rich of an understanding of everything, what happened. Like, I never imagined that I was alive when some of these things were still, like, you know, he yeah. the extradition and everything. Mm-hmm. That was, like, I was alive at that point. Yeah. A baby, but still. Yeah. Um, so, there, Salvador Allende was the um, president before um, Pinochet executed his coup, um, and he took Salvador Allende out of power. And a good way to think about this is, like, 
Salvador Allende stood for more like socialist ideals like he want, you know believed in social services like healthcare and education being more freely accessible to people and that's something that the US doesn't like that's something that Europe doesn't like like the big capitalist powers don't like and Pinochet was someone who was you know anti-communist and so it all got framed as like Pinochet uh, overtook the country so that he could um, stamp out communism out of Chile which is really like awful like i don't know why people think that's okay like when you hear in the documentary other people talking about like oh you know pinochet did did what he had to to like stamp out communism i'm just like but communism is an ideology it's a system of government like why do why does some part of the world think it's okay that to communism is not synonymous with evil or anything at all so it doesn't make sense why people use that like why that's even legitimate like i get that that's how they framed it and it was all about getting this leftist politician out of power but it just doesn't make sense why even that excuse is seen as legitimate yeah i was really frightened by his friend his white male friend the the businessman and like i wondered uh, i just couldn't tell how real he was being like did he really think that his like when you're friends with someone you're really close but i don't know I mean, it seemed like they were pretty old friends. Like, you don't think that would have ever come up in conversation? I mean, maybe not. I don't really understand how these powerful relationships work. But I mean, Margaret Thatcher visited Pinochet yeah, yeah. when he was being held because he might be extradited. So obviously, like, there is a lot of people in the world who are like, oh, it's okay. He didn't personally, you know. Yeah. And the CIA backed Pinochet because, again, like, the U.S.'s goal is always to stamp out any kind of leftist, socialist, or perceived communist moves in Latin America. And another fun fact is that after these elections in Chile, in which Allende won, like, almost all Latin American countries changed their electoral system so that something similar could not happen in their country where a leftist was elected. Mm. Yeah, so there's, I think there's a lot to talk about um, after watching this documentary and some kind of like big picture ideas that I had for guiding the, dis- the discussion were like, what do state, what, what do people do when states refuse to recognize atrocities? Because, you know, I think a big question in whether or not to extradite Pinochet, well, which I guess we should talk about now because we talked about like the coup, but then we didn't talk about like what a lot of the documentary focused on, which is his extradition. So he, I guess, regularly went to London to vacation. He went like every year, apparently, (laughs) and would go to like Harrods and um, these others. Did you know what those are? Are Yeah. Are those like Saks Fifth Avenue in in England? No, they're like worse than that in the sense that they're like old money, old England, like very just like you can get your afternoon tea there and it's very sophisticated (laughs) and like the windows to those stores are absolutely gorgeous and especially around the holidays so it's just very like bougie and european yes yeah so yeah (laughs) he would take this like really kitschy english vacation every year in london and um, at the time there were spanish attorneys and i thought that was kind of interesting yes. plot twist there but I, I think actually i did want to talk about that um the spanish attorneys so there were these um spanish attorneys who were horrified at the abuses that had occurred under the pinochet regime and i think they thought they identified as human rights lawyers um and so they uh, did all this research to try and find a loophole in spanish law that would allow them to extradite Pinochet and try him based on international laws of torture. Uh, they, and then, so this also became kind of like a, 
a European conflict because the English didn't want to extradite him, but then um, there were these Spanish lawyers really pulling for for extraditing him, and there were like a series of countries that allied themselves with that viewpoint. And it seems like the judge had a lot to do with it, yeah. right? Because he was the one that was like, let me ask for the opportunity to like interrogate him. And the English were like, oh, well, okay. And so he's like, well, actually, can I, I'm now going to ask for you to extradite him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it seemed like they also got a good judge on the case. Yeah, that's true. Because I remember the judge said that he was, he was going to take it seriously. Because like, I, I think, I don't know, I guess there could have been expectations about how he was going to rule. But he, he like was like, I'm actually just going to like look at the details and see everything. And like I'm going to read every single page and make a decision based on all the information in front of me. And luckily, there was a lot of evidence against Pinochet because there were, a lot, there were just so many living survivors who could yeah. still tell the story and who had corroborating evidence. And there were family members alive of the people who were dis- forcibly disappeared and killed. So, And there were attorneys who, during the disappearances, were documenting yeah. everything mm-hmm. and True. were trying to get people out yeah. and were making com- filing complaints. And, I mean, they explained the process, and it's gaslighting 101, like, for a state. Yeah, that was where he the, the attorneys who were in Chile while the disappearances were happening, right, so somebody would come and tell them, like, hey, they've disappeared so-and-so, and here here's the evidence. And the first thing the government would say is like, oh, um, that person's not detained. We have no record of that person being detained. And so in the next, they would then like find out where the person was being detained, other prisoners who had seen that person in the prison. And so the, and so then the government would be like, oh, that prison doesn't exist. Like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. So mm, this can't be true because not even that prison exists. And then they, like the attorney says that the next thing the state would do would be then deny that that person ever existed. It'd be like, which is scary. Yeah. Like, oh, we don't have a record of that person ever existing. It's like, that's gaslighting 101. But the point is that there were attorneys every step of the way who were documenting all this and showing all this stuff. And so when it came to the, the case being filed in the Spanish court, there were documents that that it, in the documentary, you can see how much, how meaningful it was to have the, for the attorneys to have their work be used for something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I guess the question that came out of this for me also was whether or not nation states or institutions affiliated with coalitions of nation states like the Inter-American Court of Human Rights are the only means of creating accountability or healing. Um, Because I think one of the functions of being in court that I hear from a lot of clients and a lot of people who are talking about what the point of the legal system is, is that they just want a place to be heard and they want a place Mm -hmm. to tell their story. But like, because of the adversarial nature of proceedings, it's really just not the best place to tell your story because you're going to be interrupted and you're like the opposing side is going to have a well-crafted narrative that's going to make you feel really shitty about yourself. Not just that, but the judges themselves. Oh, yeah. Like I was watching some hearings of a case that's happening right now. Uh, that was be- well, I was watching the hearing, so it just happened. And the judge was low-key scolding the family member of someone who had been disappeared because him and his family had figured that the men were more at risk. So it was the women who were taking, like, were taking the lead on filing complaints and meeting with, like, officials. And, like, the women, had, like, said, we've been taking lead. The man said, the women have been taking the lead. Like, they're the really the ones that know about it. And he was kind of, like, giving them credit. And then the judge started scolding him. She was just like, oh, you don't think there's risk to women? Like... And it was just like... I mean, that was a good point. There's like more risk for women. Yeah. As the documentary showed. But that's an inappropriate thing to totally say to, inappropriate. Pe- to family members of survivors. It's like so. they didn't have the information you have at your disposal as a 
judge of this court. They it's, only have their lived well, experiences. Just blaming. Like, it doesn't matter either way what what their intentions were. Nothing ever justifies torturing people. I know. It was just like, so that whole experience just can be wholly inappropriate and wholly in, uncomfortable, stronger, something stronger than uncomfortable for the family members and survivors. Yeah. I, so yeah, so for those reasons, I think courtrooms can be really unfriendly. And I thought that the documentary actually seemed like a, a form of healing because of the little vignettes of each woman speaking to me felt like that was their own little story that they got encapsulated into the documentary, which is really cool. And, and then in that way, like you don't have to worry about the rules of evidence and whether or not they allow you to bring in this story or like this piece of evidence like you can just say the how things happen from your perspective and i think that that's like really invaluable in the case of the chilean dictatorship because what's very creepy about how it was dealt with afterwards this really intense gaslighting of trying to pretend like it never happened and then because there wasn't any kind of public reckoning and because of the scale of what happened, like there's, you know, the survivors in the documentary talked about like running into the people that had tortured them in, in a wider climate where it hadn't even been publicly acknowledged that these abuses had occurred. And, and I thought that for that reason, especially because the documentary can reach so many people that that is kind of a, a cool means of 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 healing that that can't happen in the courtroom i don't think it's an either or question but i think that um we need to think about alternative ways for healing to occur if we can actually move towards a place where we can rely less on the carceral system no i i agree with that and the i think what i get what i've been thinking about is how we can access truth or how we as like a yeah. collective consciousness can agree on what truth is mm-hmm. or have enough of a consensus because you know in the documentary some of the um some of the survivors talk about how people they know will tell them that's not true like yeah. you weren't tortured or if you were tortured you deserved it and they quote how some people will say like the the only mistake pinochet made was not killing everybody who was a communist yeah and so if you live in that society in which for whatever reason like that's been the narrative like how do you like do you like there how do you construct a narrative that people can feel confident in especially i think like we our generation is sensitive to this issue because we can see how fake news operates and we can see how motives like really and who you are impacts the information you're giving and so with so many with all these obstacles to truth finding and with all these the like in imbalances in power in terms of like who gets to set the narrative and who has who controls the media and who gets to be on the front page and who doesn't with all that in store like how do you it feels like the courtroom is a more level a more um a, a, a space that has been designed to get at the truth as carefully as possible and and so i I agree with all the critiques you just laid at about the court system and so but that's like what i'm thinking about like it feels like how do we then define a truth without a process where that we can feel like we can 
trust because otherwise it just feels like sometimes it's going to depend on what side you're standing on and what you were told as a child and what like is is aligned with your world beliefs i guess i just haven't bought into this idea that the adversarial process brings about truth i think it just demonstrates who had the better lawyer um and i think actually this question of collective memory came up in the documentary because one of the women said that she I might be conflating scenes, but at one point she said that she, that what, that even though the people who tortured her tried to like destroy her body and harm her physically, what they weren't able to do is kill this idea of communism. And, and she said that like through her and all the survivors of torture, this idea of a, of a healthier society can still exist mm-hmm. that she still wanted to talk about it because she wanted to make sure that that story was preserved in collective memory and that's what i thought this documentary did is it, it was able to to preserve the collective memory of the pinochet survivors i mean i think that like the issues is that um everyone's going to have their own framework and their own narrative like i think that the collective memory of told from the perspective of Pinochet and his military would be drastically different. And I don't know if we can ever get to, I just don't think that we can ever get to one quote unquote objective truth. I think that we can just decide who we find authoritative on the issue and try and gather as comprehensive of a picture from that vantage point. Because I don't, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you do when people just have two strikingly different understandings of a reality. Like, that's why gaslighting can't ever lead to a productive conversation because you're, you're refusing to start at the same starting point of like, okay, so you tortured us. It's like, no, I didn't. Like, I arrested and detained you. Yeah, I think just that that process doesn't feel super satisfying for me in terms of just thinking about, because that seems like such an individual project for like one deciding what's authoritative and whatnot. So I just, I, I, yeah, I think I, I still prefer like more process than that and something that can be more done collectively and kind of for, for more people at a time. And then I also think that there's something important of being able to like, for example, there's a moment in the documentary when the, Someone says, like, that moment when Pinochet said, like, my name is, and he's like, says his full name, that was the first moment he was under the jurisdiction of a court for criminal proceedings. And, like, just the fact that they drew attention to that moment, and it was such a big deal that here he was, like, this former dictator, dictator who was, like, you know, being visited by, like, Margaret Thatcher and had all these, like, wealthy um, people was, like, was, had to be there. You know, he was dragged before the court. There's something about that, I think, that in and of itself, that is an accountability and that is meaningful. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely what a lot of people wanted, which was demonstrated by all the protesters that would be outside of the embassy and that would be outside of the courtroom when they felt like things weren't going their way. Uh, I think that they demonstrated that some kind of statement by the part of a government body was really important to them. I think we can move on kind of soon-ish, but I guess um, 
kind of veering a different direction. The class that I took was called Landscapes in Latin America, and the idea behind the course was looking at different films that explore this idea of the role that landscape has played in, in Latin American film. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I really like about Patricio Guzman's documentaries that you don't see as much in this one, but you see a lot in El Botón de Nacar and La Nostalgia de la Luz, which were his other films, that like it's not just that we exist in a landscape and that humans build on it and change it, but also that the landscape preserves stories of humans and that landscapes can tell stories and not just and that like humans don't have a monopoly on being able to tell a story and then the I didn't see that as much in this film but um what I saw uh what I did see was like this one scene where they're in the desert and the family members of the survivors were like sifting through the dirt collecting bone fragments to Mm -hmm. try and piece together the cadavers of their loved ones yeah um and I and I guess I think that's also interesting because I guess it also gets to this question of like truth finding because I guess um if humans can't be objective then the landscape can be objective and um, it, it preserves its own truths like um in his other documentaries he he talks about how um there were carvings done by indigenous people all along the desert that that like speak to how they would navigate the desert um, when they were traversing through it and then he also talks about the bones that are are in the desert floor disintegrating after Pinochet um disposed of bodies in the desert and then there's like in the same desert, there's this really huge telescope. It's like the biggest in the world mm-hmm. that allows people to see the fur like very, very far into the astrological past. Like all those things are happening on this one place. Mm-hmm. And so like things from a really long time ago, like because like looking at stars, you're always looking at the past because of how light travels. So you're looking at that past, the past of indigenous people who used to live in the desert and then like the bone remains of these people who were lived like kind of contemporary with us and i i just thought i think that that's like such a dope way to organize document a documentary series Mm -hmm. because he was able to release i get and it makes sense because we are we are tied to the land that we live on even if like americans like don't want to think about that or don't like thinking about that we are and i think i it's kind of comforting to me that atrocities get recorded in the land and a story can be told that way even if people like binochet try to hide the truth because that's what he did um and that's what like all the gaslighting on the part of his supporters is too it's just a denial of the truth but it's comforting to know that like the truth can be preserved somewhere yeah um the last thing i wanted to mention about the documentary i was particularly struck by this anecdote um that's given by one of this by the main attorney in the case and he talks about how he just felt a responsibility to do what he could and to bring this case but he says that he was he heard an anecdote later in time that just for him felt like almost like just very poetic where he learned that the Chilean ambassador in France, Pablo Neruda, oh, yeah. when he heard Which that... Is really the, cool. mm-hmm, Neruda had an incredible life. When he learned that the French had detained Spanish refugees at the border and like it was like half a million Spanish refugees, 
he sent a ship to the to that detention center where he took 250,000 of those Spanish that were detained and took them to Chile, where they were welcomed by the Minister of Health, a very, very young Allende. And he he just felt like that was just made it so clear the solidarity that needs to happen where for no reason other than like, you know, for the sake of human dignity was Neruda and Allende moved to like affirmatively, proactively act on behalf of these Spanish refugees who then and so now it was it was a nice like circle where he out of being proactive himself was able to do something for Chileans and so there was like this this tie together for him and his mind of solidarity and I just wanted to bring that to attention because I think it's important for us to do that nowadays like we always look back at the past and it's like I ask myself what would I have done if I was alive during that time and I think when I think about that, I'm missing the opportunities about the fact that I'm alive right now and what's going on while I'm alive right now. And so I just wanted to highlight that a lot of the things that are happening in Chile like are happening right now in Mexico, are happening right now in, in many, many parts of the world. Like, If we want to talk about like history repeating itself, like people are being dumped in the ocean again as a way to disappear them. And so I just want to really encourage people to think about solidarity, think about really watch this documentary and read articles about what's happening because it's a way to witness what's occurring which i think our whole conversation has really like circled on the idea that like witnessing part of it and like hearing people's stories is so important for their healing and then for ourselves as well yeah. so i agree i really like that part of the story where it was there were individuals who were in solidarity with each other and seemed to distance themselves from national identities and just felt like this wasn't about any border or arbitrary border. This was just about humanity. The Spanish lawyer said that at one point that, yeah. like, he's like, I just, it, it didn't really matter to me that, that, like, my government didn't have a direct role in this. Like, for me, although you can make an argument that it did, you... For him, it was just like, these are atrocities that nobody on this planet should be okay with because we're all human beings and Mm -hmm. that's a violation of our humanity. I think that's really, really powerful. So let's end the conversation there. case law segment, I wanted to discuss the 2013 Inter-American Court of Human Rights ruling in the case of Garcia Lucero and others versus Chile, which was the first judgment in favor of a living survivor of Pinochet-era abuses, where the court found Chile in violation of its obligations to investigate and remedy the effects of arbitrary detention and torture. And I wanted to talk about this because I wanted to explore larger questions about the effectiveness of the human rights apparatus. Cynthia and I both, I did the human rights clinic last year and Cynthia is finishing up. Are you done now? Not yet. (laughs) Cynthia is finishing up her quarter in the human rights clinic. And so we both learned about these institutions and the... I actually took a class on the inter-American court system. Oh, and Cynthia took a class Mm -hmm. on that. And then we also took Jim Cavallero's... Well, Former that? president. Conflict in, <laughs> conflict in Latin America. Human class. rights, social movements, and conflict. Something like that. Jim joked that it was just like things Jim is interested in. <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess at this point we have developed a good body of knowledge um, about the human rights system. And there's 
there's pros and cons to be sure. So I thought that it would be um, good to start that conversation by thinking about this case and, and the context of Chile and what happened there. Because many criticized the human rights apparatus, including the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, for not having teeth because of the fact that respecting state sovereignty is a central principle of the various international human rights institutions. And that came up actually in the documentary where people, a lot of people's view is just kind of like, it's inappropriate for anybody other than a Chilean to deal with this. Like this is their issue. And like, we need to respect their sovereignty and um, we like shouldn't extradite Pinochet because we need to respect like them handling their own matters. And so because of that, the consequences that you can impose on individuals and nation states are limited. But then anyway, like as prison, prison abolitionists, you and I both are uncomfortable with use, with using state sanctioned punishment as a remedy for crimes. And I kind of feel like that's like our, I feel like that's the framework right now. It's like state sanctioned, like the threat of state violence to punish you or like an alternative system. Yeah. So I, just to give a little bit more background on the case. So this was, um, and then on the process. So Garcia Lucero, he was... He was detained in September 16th, 1973. The coup was like five days before that in September 11, 1973. And they arrested him because he was actively supported a socialist political party. He was a nine-year employee of a race course in uh, Santiago de Chile. And, and so this is, this is who was the case was brought on behalf. So you can imagine being a, a, a socialist a socialist political party actively supporting that, that during Pinochet was cause for detention and then torture and everything else that happened mm-hmm. to him. And so just as background for the inter-American court system, so it's very different because it's inter intergovernmental. And so before a case can go before the court, it has to go before the Commission of Human Rights, which is what our professor served on. And so the commissioners, they found Chile responsible and that they should and be they issued recommendations for what Chile should do because they, it was responsible for what had happened to um, Mr. Leopoldo Garcia Lucero. And Chile didn't meet those recommendations. And so that's why the case went before the court. So it's not like our, you're, it's not the same framework as when we're talking about cases within like the US legal system or with inter, uh, within a country. This was before a commission that did a lot of the fact finding, a lot of the work with meeting with witnesses and then I went before the court where there were hearings and the court then also found Chile responsible. And so I just want to talk about that just as, to give folks background but going back to the question in terms of like accountability and and state sanctioned in my mind and I'm not I mean I I want to flush this out more now or at some later point because for me I'm still make in my mind I still make a difference between how we hold accountable people who lack access, significant access to power and how we hold accountable people who wield a lot of power and have the state's resources at their, at their, like, at their disposal, at their disposal. So for me, I, when I talk to people and I ask them and I tell them I'm a prison abolitionist and we discuss further, like why the person is not, they're always concerned about like the serial killer, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're concerned about the person who kills for pleasure, kill, kills for joy, enjoys torturing, right? That's the person they always have their mind. And I always try to convey how few those people are. Yeah. Uh, and so that we shouldn't have entire <coughs> systems for a select few who are really just like 
extraordinary cases which okay like maybe this is just not on the spectrum that we generally want to use anyways so for me someone like binochet a dictator who caused the deaths of so many and who who did so much harm he's also for me in that small small group of people who i'm okay with some sort of state sanctions against him and not like a community level kind of healing just because to me it, it it's on a different scale Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, <laughs> I don't know, like maybe there should be like just what a jail for dictators across the world where they that's where we put them, um, which would be separate from like what we have as an accountability system for interpersonal relationships with people who don't aren't wielding significant access to power. Yeah, I agree. I think that that makes sense to me because the level of atrocities that he was able to commit were so much larger than what any individual would be able to do because he had the backing of the state. Yeah, so I think for me, there's limits to what appropriate punishment is, even for someone who's committed really violent crimes. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't be okay with any kind of torturing of him or like, you know, well, just to make that clear, because not everybody has that viewpoint. Okay, yeah. I mean, I think being deprived of your liberty, full stop, yeah. is the punishment. It's, not yeah, then being in, in a itself. cage, then not being in a, in like having no access to hygienic food. I don't know if that's the right word to describe food. But for me, the, the punishment is the just being deprived of your liberty. I don't see as in like, oh, once you're in there, in, in some sort of like holding yeah. cell, then you have to be further punished as much as possible. I think I would be okay with house arrest for a person like this. And then I also, I, mean, I don't think you can force anyone to do anything. I feel like I'd want, maybe like, I want to be able to exchange for him to write a reflection <laughs> I sound like a third grade teacher to write a reflection on why he did what he did or like how he thinks he got to the point that he did because I just I think that there's I think that there would be something to be learned by because I don't I can't ever imagine myself getting to that point but he's a fellow human being and he got to that point so I'd want to understand from his perspective like how he got to that point because I think that have you read like Hitler's Mein Kampf no I haven't it seems like you <laughs> Oh, tell me about it. No, I haven't. But it's like how he just summarizes himself and his way of thinking and his like thoughts, you know? So I don't know. It just sounded, it reminded me what you were describing. I feel like it'd be akin to reading Hitler's Mein Kampf. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't need to write anything. Maybe there's already something. Yeah. Cause there's (laughs) like, can be referenced. Yeah. Cause then you get into things about like further notoriety and these other things. That's true. Then it's like, they make money off it and all those things. I think the model I like best that I think is similar or not, not similar, but similar in spirit um, to what you're describing is like restorative justice processes where like there's these circles, right. As a, as a process where uh, a person who committed a specific crime speaks to and meets the family members or the, like the victim of a similar crime, not their, their own. And they like have to engage in dialogue and in conversation and, from all I've heard about these, it's always been very powerful because the person sees the harm that they caused and is able to sit with it. And, and because most humans, we're human and like we we see suffering and we feel it, you know, unless you're like completely, completely have lack of all sympathy and empathy, like seeing other people suffer can be moving. So, you know, for if I would have 
Pinochet have to listen, you know, to the stories, to the people and what they what they experience. But something else that I think is important in terms of accountability in our discussion that I wanted to mention in the last um, segment about the documentary because this is where it came out in. But so ultimately, even though the court decided that Pinochet should be extradited, the Chilean government politicians bargained with the UK politicians so the English politicians, so that he wouldn't be extradited, even though the court had said he should be. And so when we're talking about accountability, we have to factor in the reality in terms of like who, because of who they are, are able to use levers that aren't readily accessible to others. So even though I'm suggesting like, oh yeah, a court process seems legitimate and seems like I would want like a state holding this like person who ran the state accountable, it might not actually be worth it because the, that person, because of their connections, might be able to just be above the law, you know? So I just think that's yeah. important to factor in in terms of thinking of how do we hold people accountable in a way that's aligned with our values. Yeah, I think it's really important because this came out in the documentary that there's a whole group of people who think that uh, heads of state and former heads of state should automatically be granted immunity just because of their having been in that position and Ugh. it's just it's hard to explain as anything other than power preserving power be, that just i don't understand not just preserving what, pro- protecting i just don't understand what the uh, what other product you know what other outcome there could be that anybody would find appealing it like the person said he said something like, the world like, wouldn't work. Exactly, yeah. He was like, it was worded very strongly. He said that the, the world wouldn't function if, if former heads of state and heads of state could be prosecuted. And basically what he's saying is, like, heads of state who have committed war crimes are going to always be looking over their shoulder. And it's like, well, why not? Why is that a bad thing? Something that I did want to mention, just again, because we are talking about accountability. So even though the, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights, they did find Chile responsible, the individual there was like some they had to like publicly acknowledge like responsibility and whatnot on behalf of chile but in terms of what the individual the compensation like he and his family got was uh thirty thousand nine hundred and twenty four and i think i saw an article where he said he actually only got like twenty thousand dollars and so i just wanted to flag that because i just think people might be surprised at that number and like the the inter-american court is known for giving very very like small um fines because they want to make sure that the person at least gets that and and there's a lot of like just strategy behind that but i just wanted to flag that because even when you are successful in court you know what does that actually mean for the the person who experienced these crimes especially if the questions are about making victims whole and i think that that question is so complicated because currently in our legal systems, the way to make victims whole is either incarcerating somebody or giving the victim money. And it then brings up questions of like, how do you calculate the value of life that was taken away from you when you were tortured? Mm -hmm. How do you put a monetary value to that? But I mean, I think we can all agree that more money would be better than less money for somebody who's a survivor of torture. But so he had to like flee the country and everything. So yeah. Well, we'll post the links to this case and everything so folks can look it up if they want to read more about it. Yeah. I think the last thing that we need to bring up um, in this whole conversation is that 
There's like an embedded hypocrisy in the human rights apparatus because it was created and it's upheld by powerful Western nations who are the deciding body over the promulgation of how these courts are run. And it's kind of strange because then as a result, they have a monopoly over which atrocities are considered human rights abuses and which ones are tried in these courts in the first place. Like Mm -hmm. the U.S. could be tried every single day in the Inter-American Court of Human Rights for the human rights abuses that it it violates, but it's never going to. Mm -hmm. Or, I mean, never has as to up until this point, who knows what will happen in the future. And so I think that, like, we also need to factor that in when we think about the justice of this case like how strange it is that this body of nations that's european nations in the united states is telling this latin american country that they've committed human rights abuse and never actually being held accountable themselves and i think that we especially need to bring that up with the new head of the cia gina haskell who was complicit in the torture that occurred under the bush years um, uh, the torture of Guantanamo detainees. So I think... And the people who, in the office of legal counsel for the White House, the two people who signed off on it and said, like, oh yeah, torture is fine. Like, one of them's a judge and the other one's a, a law professor at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. A Ninth Circuit judge, yeah. So... Like a prominent yeah, person. Yeah, so let's, mm-hmm. let's talk about accountability where it's... I, yeah, and we're not protesting, right? We're not, like... I mean, there are people who do but i'm just saying us we have a tenemos cola que nos pisen yeah okay cool i think we can move on now so the last thing that i wanted to talk about was the the recent um the recent trip that survivors of child sex abuse Chilean victims, Chilean survivors uh, made to the Vatican to visit Pope Francis because uh, prior to this meeting, Pope Francis had denied that their abuse had occurred, which outraged the survivors and prompted them to want to make this trip to the Vatican so that they could basically look this person in the eye and say, I experienced this abuse and you need to hold your bishops accountable. Mm. Um, Because this wasn't just a case of a few bad apples. There was a whole institutional issue in that there were bishops who kept these priests in place, even though there were so many reports of abuse. What they would do is they would just like switch them from parish to parish mm-hmm. until they would get complaints and then move them to another one. Which is what happened in Boston. Yeah, yeah, it's it's a Catholic Church institutional issue, and and there's people who are alive who experience this abuse who want the priests to be held accountable and who want an official apology. And I think this is probably extra hurtful because if they're still practicing Catholics, like it must, it must feel so confusing to have been so violated by a person who's supposed to be a proponent of your faith. It's this thing that's like your spiritual life and really important to you. And I wanted to bring this up because I think we have to talk about alternative models of accountability. If we are going to be prison abolitionists, like we can't just say we don't want prison. We have to say, we, I think we have to like start thinking about what alternative models could look like. And I guess the Vatican has like its own kind of alternative model to the carceral state, but it doesn't seem to be very effective. The priest that was tried for uh, the abuses was sentenced to a lifetime of prayer or penitence. And 
I don't know. I guess we have to look at this in context. Well, no, I, I just think that's very mild. Because I was going to say, oh, in context, like maybe this is some kind of sacrifice within the religion. But having grown up Catholic, my understanding is you're supposed to be praying every moment you get. So I don't really understand how a sentence of a lifetime of prayer would impose anything additional on mm-hmm. this priest. And then I think this is also important to bring up because like you were saying the justification for prison that is kind of hardest to contend with is when people say well what about the serial killer what about the pedophile what about the like serial rapist and this is kind of one of those issues with like what do you do with this person who has committed crimes that just like disgust you and that like you don't understand and that make you feel like yeah maybe there's some people who just shouldn't walk among us like how do we deal with this well, I think that we need to, even though you like one might feel all these different emotions, we have to not let that erode anybody else's humanity because I think that's just incredibly dangerous and I think we have to be aware of it when we do it ourselves, you know, because it's so easy to vilify a person. And and that's where it's like, what, well, what are we looking at? Are we looking at this person's like totality of human life experiences? And in that context, like, can we not understand, but can we, do we find things that remind us of someone's dignity and help us understand how to prevent, help us understand like what would be the best source of accountability for this individual? Because if we narrow it down to the, like just the crime itself, I, like, I don't think that's, that is enough but at the same time like i do understand that like some of these crimes are really awful and and, like i get that but i just i just don't think that we as humans are have done anything close to a good job in terms of being able to judge others fairly and consistently i i see what you're saying well i just in the in this context like there's been studies right and like the movie spotlight talks about it plenty they like documented well how like it was it was like a consistent like issue clearly it's a problem with this institution that's like like creating this in these the men who decide to go in as priests like it's it's consistent enough of a pattern that it's not like like there's a there's a cause and effect and and so in that sense it's like well who's responsible it's like <laughs> we're gonna be very proud of you for saying that why because people are very attached to their religion i'm i'm sorry i think the catholic church is responsible and is creating this and it's not just like oh my like just opinion but this is like what people who have studied this and who are that's the conclusion they've come to their what have studied what the in in the movie spotlight which is based on real research that happened they explain how this with like priests and different religious um, people who can't get married, they can like it's enough of a pattern and it happens enough cases where it's not like men who want to be pedophiles go into the Catholic Church, but men go into the Catholic Church and because of the institutions, because of the like the environment and everything, then develop these things kind of thing. I'll look this up and I will apologize if I've got it wrong, but from what I remember and from what I understand, it's it's very much like that kind of thing. It's it's consistent of enough of a pattern. Um, where it's like, this is the cat, like, I see this, it's like, the one that should be held accountable is the Catholic Church, because this isn't new, this hasn't just happened the last 10 years, in the 15 years, this hasn't been one priest in one country, in one city, and so it's like, who's to blame, is it really the individual, or is it this institution? 
Like, how do you, who do you hold accountable, the individual or the person that created that? Yeah, I think, I mean, I haven't really done any research on this, so I, I can't really speak fully to the research that's out there, but my understanding is that there, we don't really understand things like pedophilia, and I think that one effect of the prison system is that instead of coming to better understand the causes of these things so that we can engage in prevention or that we can engage in like you know mitigation we don't get anywhere and we just continue to not understand these things and just hide away these ugly truths that we don't want to think about in in prison and unfortunately it doesn't make these things go away um you know it only you incapacitate someone temporarily and then inflict further psychological trauma on them and I think this conversation reminds me of an activist that I saw. She's a prison abolitionist and she's a survivor of child abuse, child sexual abuse. And she said that we, some, like that to be a, in vein, in the same vein of what we've been saying, that to be a prison abolitionist, you need to create alternative systems of support. Like we need to be, we need to live lives much closer to each other than we do now. She, cause the person who abused her was her grandfather. And she said that um, she came to find out later in life that her grandfather would tell people like, please don't leave me alone with her. And that people like didn't really pay attention or like didn't really take it seriously. Um, and in that way kind of enabled the abuse. And, and so I think that story demonstrates like that incarceration doesn't fix these problems and that these are problems that just need to be actually re reckoned with amongst each other in society. We would need to very much like change how we live our lives. Um, sorry, I'm just like still processing what you just said. And but one thing I, I will say that I was reminded of is in Yvette and I were just had a reading group not that long ago. One of the readings um, that was uh, when you call when they call you a terrorist, the Patrice, I believe, talks about um, prison abolition and just it says it very beautifully. And I'll, I'll I'll put up a link to the text so people can buy the book. It's a really good read. Um, where she says, "When I'm demanding prison abolition, I know that I'm demanding equality. I'm, I'm demanding like health for everybody. I'm demanding this because a lot of things are required for us to be able to live in a in a world where we don't rely on prisons." Yeah, because right now the prison system criminalizes poverty and it criminalizes mental health issues. And so, you know, if we invest in healthcare, if we invest in education, if we invest to create a livable wage for people, we like redistribute income in that way so that everybody has like a universal basic income or everybody is able to achieve a certain standard of living, like we would see a reduction in crime. And it makes me really sad that the current prison system makes it so that like we see every other person as like, a potential criminal instead of seeing them as a potential community member. I found the book that I was talking about and so I'll post it, but yeah, it's like the book was that it found that like 6% of all priests were like engaging in this abuse. And so like 6% is not an insignificant amount at all. So I'll post the link in case people are really disturbed by what I said about the Catholic Church being the one that's responsible. <laughs> Is there anything else you wanted to say? Yeah. Okay. For recommendations, I wanted to recommend 
the two other documentaries that Patricio Guzman has made, um, El Botón de Nacar and La Nostalgia de la Luz, they also unpack the horrors of the Chilean dictatorship and other things in Chilean history. Um, so they're definitely worth checking out. Yeah, so I wanted to recommend, because I obviously we recommend the documentary. Um, it's, it's really powerful. Again, I encourage everybody to re- watch it uh, just so that you can be another witness of and like remember that and, and remember what happened because I heard someone say I can't remember I don't know if you were there Yvette but I, someone said how the or maybe I read it how the world is forgetting the lessons of nunca mas right for like 30 40 years ago the world was just like never again like never again are we going to allow these atrocities to happen like never again are we going to let so many people killed and like it was coming out of the holocaust but it was all coming out of all these dictatorships and all these like in argentina everything that happened there and so there's i I read somewhere or saw somewhere that's that someone felt like the world is forgetting the lessons of never again because we're allowing it to happen now and we're allowing it to get worse without checking it and so all these like lessons that we had learned from all this pain we're forgetting and so for those reasons alone, I recommend we like folks watch this documentary, but I also want to recommend Forensic Architecture. It's this organization that I think folks who watch the documentary will really enjoy because there is a lot of like forensics that goes into documenting these mass like um, human rights violations and forced disappearances and finding the bones and like reconstructing what happened from like what the bones tell you and things like that. There's organizations that are dedicated to that. And so forensic architecture, what I really like the way that they recreated what happened in Ayotzinapa in Mexico, because they did a great job of making this really, really, really complicated information that was actively, you know, manipulated by the Mexican state government, like at the local level, at the state level and at the federal level. Um, they present that information so clearly. So I'll post a link to their to their website, specifically what they have on Ayotzinapa. And I, again, recommend folks watch their 17-minute video. They have several videos, but the one that's like 17 minutes or so is the best one, I think. So yeah, I, I that's, that's what I recommend. And it'll be a nice counterpart to like seeing things that happened 30 years ago to seeing things that happened like 10, five years ago and are happening again and continue to happen, so... And then finally, we just wanted to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Cerebronas. Donate to our Patreon. The link is on our website. And you can also just Venmo us if you want to do a one-time thing. Please leave us an iTunes review. We have like 91 ratings at I this know. Point. It's so nice yeah. to read them. It yeah. really is. It really warms our hearts and really makes our day when we read them. So if you want to put a smile on our face, then please leave us a five-star review. Um, And then also we have a new little highlight on our Instagram about booking us. So if you have questions about that, then also email us at sitabronas.pod at gmail. We already have some exciting things in the works and we just really want to meet all of you. So please also reach out to us about that. Yvette, I'm so excited for you. Please go enjoy now your one week left of law school. Yay! Bye. Who it is, son? Stay hey, yo, my dog's